You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, take your the Word of God and let's open it up to Romans chapter 3 again. We are back in Romans today and, and continuing along in this, this letter of Paul to the Romans. So find Romans chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3 this morning. Uh, would appreciate your prayers also, Hannah and Peter are on a girls' weekend with some of her sisters down in Missouri. She'll be traveling back, maybe even right now, on her, on her way home. So appreciate your prayers for them as they travel to today. And um, as you turn to Romans 3, I've got a couple pictures to catch up on. I've been, I'm behind because of where we left off on uh, Palm Sunday. So let's do last week first. So last week, I gave a report on our time at uh, T4G, and this picture came in from Ainsley O'Burn. And this was Ainsley. Now, Ainsley, I didn't write down all the interpretations so you can fill everybody in when we're over, but I think I was talking about this has something to do with remembering Christ. And, and leaders will fail us. Every human leader, pastor, speaker will fail. Christ will not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we want to remember Christ. So Thank you, Ainsley, for your drawing. I don't get a lot of pictures from Ainsley, so thank you. I get some, right? But, but uh, appreciate that. And then there's one more from a, now a couple weeks ago from Sonia, uh, her Branson, and um, you can look at some of her other pictures. This you might not be able to see from there, but this brings us to kind of where we're at. This is a little recap of chapter 2, and we had looked at verses 17 all the way through 29, kind of speaking of this Jew that the Jewish person that, that, that has the law but doesn't do what it doesn't obey the law. And so it becomes, uh, they're just the same. They, they dishonor God in this. And so she's got down, they've got what the Jew has. They've got the right name. They've got the law. They boast in God. They taught. They teach. But what they do is, is different. And she's got number four there is kind of the, uh, don't be lazy. Somebody's sleeping in bed there. Or ro- I think number five is that idea of robbing the temples and, and what the Jew needs is that heart change to see the cross, Jesus. And so we're going to continue on that motion towards, towards where Paul is taking us in the gospel. But thank you, Sonia. I don't know if they're here today, but thank you for, for that drawing as well. And for everybody, love it. Love to get those from you, all of you. Even adults, let's make the plea again. If you're adults, you like to draw, turn it in. I can, I can show those anonymously. That can happen. So, uh, but do that. Well, let's get to God's Word then. Let's hear from Him. In chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. That's where we're going to kind of camp today, and then we'll continue on, Lord willing, in the weeks to follow here. So let's read God's Word. Then in verse 1, chapter 3, Romans. So Paul asks here, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not 
do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray again as we look at this word. We do come before you, O one whose name is majestic. And we pray once again, Lord, that in, the, in your very word, as, as we talked about last week, that your word would do the work. We pray again that that would be the case today. Help us to listen. Lord, where there are things that are challenging for us to understand and, and what Paul is writing and to understand what's going on, Lord, give that to us by your mercy, we pray. Lord, help us to get a sense of who you are, you who are worthy, whose name is above any other name, who orders the stars and the moon and all things, and we only get a glimpse of an inch of your infinite glory. Lord, help us to understand that more by your Spirit as we study your word today, and then go and live as your disciples, as followers of Christ. And We pray this in your name. Amen. I have no light story to begin with, maybe just really a heavy question for us. Probably have asked it before, but I, wanna, I think it drills down to where we're at today in the text. And here's, here's the question for us to consider. Is God just, J-U-S-T, is God just in all of his ways to include inflicting wrath on the unrighteous? So, do you believe in this, in this righteous God and that in his righteousness he will punish every evil thought and word and deed that defies his rule? Is he just in all these ways, in his inflicting wrath on the unrighteous? I ask because we, we live in a day and it's not unlike, I don't think, you know, and say, well, this has never happened before. It's not like any other time in history. I think it's, it's throughout where... God is made, begins to be made in our own image. And we don't like to think of God in, in these terms, as we've been seeing throughout Romans 2, at least, this God of wrath. We'd rather talk about the, the loving God. Maybe we say, give me a happier God. I don't want to talk, oh, great, another sermon on the, you know, the, the judgment of God. Maybe that's the plea. Or, or you know, I, can't, I just can't believe in a God like that. Maybe you hear others say that. That's not the God I like to believe in. Or, isn't he full of love and mercy, and so he's full of wrath, and how can this be? The idea here is how you understand God in terms of his judgments. We are forming, actually not we, Paul is, forming foundational bricks and layers to understanding and getting a firm grasp of the gospel. If we get this down and understand the foundation of God's righteous judgment and his inflicting wrath, not as, a, not as just on a whim and just because he's just angry some days, but he is righteous and just in all he does, we get a firmer grasp of the gospel. And so in order to grasp the significance of the gospel, we continue along in Romans 2 and 3, actually 1 and 2 and 3 here, to see his justice, his righteous decrees. And his righteous and just today, his righteous and just condemnation of the unrighteous. So let me give you one phrase in case from here on out the, the, the eyes get heavy and you begin to drift away from me. Here's the phrase. So just hear this. Stay with me, please. But if you, if you must, here's my phrase. God is right to condemn the unrighteous. God is right. Now I could say just, and I'm just trying to help us in maybe simpler language. God is right 
to condemn the unrighteous. Let me give you an overview um, of kind of the passage. We'll, we'll get to the parts. Here's what I find in the text today. I've got three kind of bullet points or outline, forming three questions here really from the text. So verses 1 through 2, if you're kind of at a 1, 2, 3, 1 through 2, we're going to, Paul's going to ask, lots of questions here actually. There's, I think there's eight uh, total, but he's going to say, what advantage has a Jew? So we're going to think about that. What's, what is the advantage of the Jew? In verses 3 through 4, the question there is, does faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness to his word? So first, what advantage has a Jew? Second, does faithlessness of his people, does that nullify God's faithfulness to his word? And then in verses 5 through 8, really a bigger chunk there, is, is God, and here's kind of where that, that God is right to condemn the unrighteous, here's the question, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? on the unrighteous. So because he does this and inflicts wrath on the unrighteous, is he, is he unrighteous in doing so? So three parts. The first question comes from verse 1. Look down again at your text where these two questions start. Then what advantage, Paul asks, has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Coming out of chapter 2, Paul anticipates a question. And it's just neat how Paul writes this book, and it's like he anticipates the questions that we might have as we read along. So I think instead of looking at these, boy, there's a lot of questions that can be helpful to us. And so he kind of anticipates a question from the Jewish audience. And, it, you know, what's the point then? If, if, if being a Jew or being circumcised, if it's just on the heart, and does it matter? And so Paul has just described in chapter 2, the last part of it here, he said, circumcision, it matters if you obey the law. But if the law is broken, if there's unrighteousness, circumcision is uncircumcision. And Paul's made the claim to counter the one who's, who's a Jew in, in name, as we saw there from the picture, that being a Jew means inward change. There's this inward circumcision of the heart. And so Paul, again, what is the advantage then of the Jew? And Paul's going to answer in the first part of verse 2, and he's going to say, much in every way, and he makes this phrase, to begin with. So he says, what's the advantage? Much in every way, to begin with, and then we'll look at that second part in a little bit. But Paul affirms. He affirms value and advantage, much in every way. And perhaps as we read this, maybe as you read over this, we anticipate kind of a long list. Like Paul's going to just give us a list of, all the advantages, and maybe you're a, a real list, maybe we're just list type people that we want the, well, here's five reasons. Paul gives one. He, he says in the ESV, to begin with, uh, if you're reading NASB or NIV, he says, first of all. But then beyond verse two, he never completes the list. It's just first of all, and you look, and where's second, Paul? Where is it? And it just doesn't show up, which, by the way, side note, if you ever start a thought, and you don't finish it, you're in good company. I, I, don't, I don't think he's, he's absent-minded, but there's a thought here, and then he just gets into the rest of his text. He gives one. And, and perhaps, maybe, uh, Paul's instead saying, instead of saying, you know, first out of a list of many, he's, maybe he's saying, this is primarily the advantage. This is first in importance. Maybe that could be. I'm just speculating there. Whatever it is, he states the point, and that's the end of verse 2. So he's saying, what's the advantage? Verse 2 is the answer. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What are these oracles of God? One commentator, Leon Morris, you'll hear me use him some. He says here, some possibilities. What, what does Paul mean by these? They've been entrusted with these oracles of God. Some ideas. These are God's, are they God's promises? They've been entrusted with the promises of God. Maybe they've been entrusted with the, the messianic, the prophecies. So these types of oracles. Or they've been entrusted with the law or entrusted with the covenant or the Ten, uh, ten Commandments. But in summary, he, he says this, quote, It is better not to restrict the expression, but to see it as referring to the whole Old Testament revelation. They've been entrusted with this revelation from God. The fact is, God has spoken his words to his people. Not to other nations, not to other peoples. They benefit from them immensely, but it's to the Jew, the Hebrew, the descendants of Jacob, of Israel. God has revealed his words. Moses asks this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 33. He says, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? The Jewish people are a unique people to whom God has made known his purposes, his words. So what's the advantage? They were given God's revelation. But there's a problem with Israel and God's words, and that's the problem that we're going to see. It's Israel's unfaithfulness to those words. That's nothing new as we've gone through Joshua and then in Judges, and you've seen this throughout the Old Testament. God gave his instruction, but even, even in chapter 2, Israel has broken the law. They have dishonored the God who has spoke to them. Look at verse 3. So Paul asks more questions. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Again, this, these are this questions, I think, number 3 and 4 out of, out of 8, I believe here. They just The questions keep coming. Does the unfaithfulness of God negate God's faithfulness to his to his words. So in chapter 2, again, Paul's just pointed out those who would call themselves a Jew, they boast in the law, they assume their teachers, the guides to the blind, but they break God's law, they dishonor him. The, these, these people, they were given this law of God, his revelation, they have not been faithful to it. So does that faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness to his word? Paul's answer, emphatically, verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul says, no, by no means. God is true. And thus he is true to his word. He is not like unfaithful Israel. God gives the law, but unlike The Jew, he will not break any of his laws. He remains true. He's justified in his words, though men be liars. So Israel's unfaithfulness does not mean God is unfaithful to his promises. And there's great hope in this. And so Paul, in verse 4 then, you saw in part of that verse in the quotes, maybe you have it kind of set apart, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. And I want to take you there. We don't always go to certain places, but head to Psalm 51. This is coming out of Psalm 
51. You can keep a finger in Romans 3. We'll head back there. It comes out of Psalm 51. Interesting context here, but this is that great psalm of David's confession. Psalm 51. We'll just, I'll be reading 1 through 4 here. David, King David, has been confronted by Nathan, the sin regarding Bathsheba, and then his murdering of Uriah. His great sin here. And here's just this great passage. Maybe you've turned to this passage many times to spur on your own confession to the Lord. But here's what David says. And I'll, read, I'll just read 1 through 4 even. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. My, my, my. Do you hear the the ownership of this? Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then looking to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And you see there this connection to Romans 3. What's David saying here? He's saying, your judgments, God, against the unfaithful, they are right. When you judge a sinner for his ways, for his transgressions, you're right to do that. David doesn't make him right, he doesn't... But he, but he sees this. God is vindicated. You are just to punish that sin, to inflict wrath on that sin. Often we think of God's uh, faithfulness. We think of it in terms of his people, in terms of blessing. We think of God as being faithful, which he is. He shows steadfast love. He's faithful to his promises. And that can be great encouragement. It should be great encouragement. But the, the reminder coming out of today in Romans 3 is he's faithful to all, you know, underlying, bold, italics, all of his promises. So we celebrate, yes, he's faithful to his promises. And some of those promises, as we're seeing in Romans 3, is that God is just and he is right to bring sin into judgment. He's faithful with that. He's faithful in his blessing. He's faithful in his judgment as well. You can head back to Romans 3 as we see this from Psalm 51. But back into Romans 3 then, and I want to just read a rather extended comment from Doug Moo as we look back into Romans 3 then, thinking, kind of helping me think on the same line here. He says, quote, The faithfulness of God is expressed generally in verse 3, and would undoubtedly imply to a Jewish, Jewish objector, as well as to the readers, a commitment on God's part to maintain Israel's special and blessed place in God's purpose. There's the comfort of that. You know, take, take comfort. God is faithful. And then he goes on to say, in verse 4, however, Paul shows that God's faithfulness must also be recognized when he judges his people's sins. As Paul has shown at length in chapter 2, the special place of Israel in God's plan does not protect them from the judgment of God. So merely having been given, given the oracles of God does not avert God's righteous judgment. So in the context, we're reminded God is righteous to bring 
judgment upon Jew and Gentile alike for disobedience to the law, the breaking of it, the dishonoring of God. In so doing, what is he doing? He's being faithful to his word. God is faithful to judge, and he's judged faithful to his words. So does man's faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness to all? Again, underline, italic, bold, to all of his word. No, God is true. He's faithful to everything he has said. Now verses 5 through 8 then continue to challenge the, the justness of God. This time from an angle of man's unrighteousness that shows the righteousness of God. So let's work through this. Look at verse 5. Back in Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I think here, in in some way, Paul seems to anticipate an excuse made by unrighteous men. Here's the excuse. Here's how it might go. Okay, so if my unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, then why does he inflict wrath on me? Is, Is not my unrighteousness helping to just shine or show God's righteousness? Again, Leon Morris explains their objection this way. Sin is simply giving God the opportunity of showing how righteous he is, the objector reasons, and so he ought not to punish the sinner. Um, Perhaps I didn't think long enough, but I've got an illustration. You can tell me later if it's helpful or not. If not, just throw it out. But imagine this, to put it in, in our, maybe in, in a way to try to understand it. Imagine I get pulled over for speeding, and the police officer, officer issues me a ticket for speeding. But instead of accepting the blame, I just got to think through this, instead of accepting the blame, I, I make the case here that, you know, actually being pulled over and, and the ticket, it actually justifies the police officer's existence. It's part of his, his work. And so if I had not sped, if a ticket had not been issued, then the police officer's authority would not have been shown. So in turn, you see I'm twisting this around? So my error actually promotes the policemanship. So my speeding promotes this officer. And instead of being ticketed, I should, I should actually be thanked for justifying the authority of the police officer. Like he ought to thank me. I shouldn't be in trouble because I've made made his authority real, or I've shown it to be, I've shown his authority. Now, whether you're still with me or not will depend on how great that illustration was. It's just absurd. It's an absurd argument, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 5 as well. This is not godly thinking, and so he explains also in, uh, at, the, at the end of verse 5 there, I speak in a human way. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? If our unrighteousness somehow brings him out, kind of shines on him, Paul answers in verse 6. It's the same, really, statement that he's used in verse 4. Look at verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Again, emphatically, Paul says, no, this is not the case. And then he concludes with a question, really, to make the point, how then could God judge the world? 
And here we're edging closer as we march through chapter 3 and we get to the glorious hope of the gospel. We're going to see all have sinned and yet God's justifying work in Christ that's coming. But we see this climax. The entire world is judged in sin. He is right to judge them. Yes, the sinfulness of the world, it illuminates God's righteousness, you could say, but that doesn't acquit the sinner before God. Man's unrighteousness, that of the world, it's worthy of and deserving of the wrath of God because he is righteous in his judgment. He is just to judge. And so then we come then to these last verses, 7 through 8 here. And he says this, more question. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? See that thought line? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. If my lie promotes God's glory, if if my doing evil really promotes good, it it would seem then that God is unrighteous to punish sin if it promotes his glory. And here Paul seems to be answering even a personal charge here. Maybe, maybe it was some in Rome, maybe elsewhere. You see him where he said in verse 8, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Maybe it's a charge, I think, towards Paul's preaching of the gospel and his, his arguments to really exalt the righteousness of God amidst the sinfulness of man. I'm going to admit right here, I'm going to stop and just say, this is a challenging, challenging section right here because I... I see in here two things, and, and the one I understand a little more than the other. Paul's teaching, he's teaching that unrighteousness and evil, if, if they exalt the truthfulness of God, if they show forth his glory, they do not exempt the sinner. The sinner is judged justly for that sin. But it would also seem that Paul's answering a charge against him and his gospel. So, somehow in his gospel preaching, they're seeing him as maybe promoting this, promoting sinfulness in, in some way or promoting evil or that good would come. Uh, Leon Morris states this of the objectors to Paul here. He says that they have accused him of actively fostering sin in order to give the greatest scope for grace. Maybe, maybe the charge, he's making much of sin. Now, again, I just, there's a challenge here for me to put seven and eight just cohesively together. But let me try to summarize just the broader argument so you can work that out, think that through. Um, again, as I said to my Sunday school class, I, times like these, I kind of lean on Peter that says there's some things in Paul that are hard to understand. Some of it might make more sense. Um, there's some challenges. But here, let's not miss it for, for what Paul, I think the text, where it's going, this justice of God, the justness of who God is in his judgments that he is right to inflict wrath and condemn the sinner. God's condemnation of all sinners is just. And so the condemnation of the unrighteous is a just act by God. To inflict wrath, he's just in doing so. To judge the world, he is just, justified to do that. He is faithful to all his words. So it began as a question by Paul to the Jew who says, what's the point of being a Jew or being circumcised? Paul then moves, moves to fully, I think, and rightly proclaim the faithful justice of God against unrighteousness. 
The Jews were given the oracles of God, and, and, and to whom much has been given, much is required. But they, along with all of mankind, were unfaithful to the law of God. So this final blow, the, the hammering of Paul is coming. We're going to look at it next week in, Lord willing, verses 9 through 20. But I think we have a doctrine here that's probably not being established, but at least, I think, defended of God's justice, that he is faithful to every word he's spoken. He is just to inflict his righteous wrath on all who are unrighteous. Be it the law on the heart, the law in hand, God is just to contemn the one who stands in rebellion to him. To, to rephrase, to put it in that simple phrase, God is right to condemn the unrighteous. Deuteronomy 32.4 reads this way, The rock, about God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. David acknowledged this in Psalm 51, where Paul went. David had primarily, against you and you only, he had sinned against God. He admits I was brought forth in, in iniquity and sin. And he acknowledges God delights in truth in the inward being. And so David affirms, Lord, you are just in your judgment on sin. My sin. You heard how many times? My transgressions, my iniquities. You are just to judge me for my sin. But it's the same one that David runs to for mercy as we read. Beginning verse, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me, he goes on to say, cleanse me. As we looked at last week, one would come from David's offspring, Jesus Christ. And on him, God's wrath would be, as we're going to see, fully satisfied and sinful man by faith in Christ, might be declared righteous. And in all of this, God remains just. May we build upon us a gospel foundation of God's justice to rightly bring judgment upon the unrighteous. He's, he's right to condemn the unrighteous. May each of us see our need. I realize it's not as we go through Romans, boy, we... We've heard this before. Do you hear the, just the, almost the repetitive nature of this? To drill down, let us get a foundation of the judgment coming, the righteous judgment of God upon sinners. You and I who have gone against, who have rebelled against him, we are in need of mercy. And may we see that mercy in the only righteous one, Christ. As we march towards chapter 3, and then in and look towards Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there's the thought that says, can't we move on to better news? Oh, there's better news. There is great news. But Lord, let us also praise you, for you are just. You rightly condemn sin. We want that, Lord, for others. When somebody does a wrong, we want to see them justly condemned, punished, 
for crime. And we praise you, Lord, that you set the, the, the standard for that. But then, Lord, help us to see we too are in that same boat. We too are wretched, like Paul, who says, I'm the, the worst of sinners. Lord, may we not look around and say, oh, look at, a, look at an unjust world bef- and, and miss having eyes to see our standing with you. Lord, if we know Christ, if we who are gathered here know you through Christ, then it is sheer 100% mercy by you to show us our need. And so I pray in this prayer as we close this sermon that you would show each one here that need. Lord, help us not to come away from this thinking I've heard that before. Yeah, I know about the justice of God, including the preacher. Lord, may we see all of what we deserve and then look and continue to look, pleading for, pleading for your mercy in Christ, your sure salvation in him. Help us to see this clearly and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.